Well, uh, for some, this is very important. For me, not so much. But uh, baseball season is here, and it has begun. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about baseball. I don't follow it a whole lot. But one, one thing that I do like about baseball is, is the name Yogi Berra. You remember Yogi Berra? Uh, and, and he's well-known as a, as a baseball player, but even more so uh, for his yogi-isms, his, his manners of speech and, and comments that he made. One of my favorite uh, Yogi Berra comments is this. When you get to a fork in the road, take it. Y'all have heard that one too. When you get to a fork in the road, take it. What does that mean? Well, Yogi Berra said when you get to a fork in the road, take it. Well, listen, life is not like that. There are those times when we get to a fork in the road of life and we have to choose. Are we going to go to the left side or are we going to go to the right side? Do we take the easiest route, which is very tempting often, or do we take the necessary route? which leads to better things, but oftentimes can be more difficult. Well, Jesus faced a fork in the road. He faced a turning point that we're going to look at today. Is it to follow God's will, the necessary route, or to reject God's will, the easier route? Jesus was at this crossroads in John chapter 18, which is where we're at today. I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn there. John chapter 18, the fork in the road, the turning point, the decision that Jesus had to make, and his answer to this fork in the road, his decision of which way to go, was set in motion the events leading to the cross and leading to our salvation. I'm thankful today that Jesus took the necessity route, that Jesus took the route that was necessary in order for us to go to heaven and for salvation to be secured. Aren't you thankful that in, when Jesus got to that fork in the road, he chose to go to the cross? Now, here's the situation. It is Thursday night on the week of the cross. It is Passover week. Jesus has had the supper with his uh, disciples. He had washed their feet. He had given them instructions. He had offered the beautiful prayer that we covered last week in John chapter 17. And now they go out. They leave from the upper room, from that place. And Jesus decides that he is going to carry through with God's will and God's purpose. And so they went across uh, from Jerusalem. They crossed a stream and they went to a garden in a place called Gethsemane. And it's a garden that Jesus often met with his disciples in. It was a known place. It was a place to, where he would gather them around and teach. It's a place where they would go and rest. It is a place where they would, would spend time together away from the crowds of people. Other gardens besides this existed on this hillside. Now, I want to show you a couple of pictures of this. You look on the screen, and you'll see, first of all, uh, if you're standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, looking across the valley... You'll see the fence there at the bottom of the screen, and below that fence is where the valley comes together, and there's the kiss called the Kidron Valley, and there's a stream at the bottom of that valley. And if you're standing in Jerusalem where the temple is, looking across the valley, across that stream, going up the hill on the other side is the Mount of Olives. Up at the top there is the Mount of Olives, and all on that side of that hill facing Jerusalem are a series of gardens they were owned by the wealthy who lived in the city, but they owned a garden across the valley. Now you'll notice the building in the, in the center of the picture is the building where the traditional Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus went with his disciples, that's a, a church built on the site of what is believed to be where Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Now, the next picture is going to show you the actual Garden of Gethsemane from tradition. And you'll see that in there, there are some paths. There are lots of olive trees. And you'll notice, if you can tell, the tree in the forefront is a huge olive tree. It's not believed that these olive trees in this garden, it's not believed they go all the way back to the time of Jesus, but that they are very, very old trees in this garden. So, so it is believed to be this garden. It may have been this one. It may have been another one on the hillside. But this is where Jesus went with his followers in order to, to spend time with them on Thursday night after the washing of the feet, after the instructions, after the prayer, and before the cross. Jesus takes his followers, his disciples, out to this garden. The word Gethsemane literally means oil press. And it is in this garden where the oil press was where Jesus faced the pressures of going to the cross and knowing what was about to happen. And so, uh, so would you stand with me this morning as we read the beginning of chapter 18 of the Gospel of John, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the and the important thing that took place there in the garden. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers... And some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So again he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, don't you just love Simon Peter? Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus obediently stepped forward and offered himself as the Savior. May we better understand the Scripture and all that it teaches. May we embrace it in faith and obedience. May it become more and more real in our lives. May people see in us the same kind of submission and obedience that Jesus demonstrated there in the garden. And again, Lord, we thank you that you went to the cross willingly for us. May we remember and never forget as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated.
so this crossroads, this fork in the road that Jesus was at, propelled him forward to the cross. And on the cross, he secured for us our salvation, that we might put our faith and our trust in him. There in that moment, we see Jesus, and we see Judas, and we see Peter. And we see in each one of these characters from the Bible responses to the gospel and to the will of God. So let's take just a few minutes this morning in the time that we have and look at each one of these characters from Scripture and what they teach us and what they encourage us to do and how we might respond in, uh, after hearing this. First of all, let's look at the example of Jesus. And Jesus gives us, in this story, he gives us an example of submission and courage and obedience. Those three words are important. Submission, courage, and obedience. There in the garden, when Jesus was faced with his fork in the road, he chose submission to the will of God. Now, if you were to read this, this, this entire episode is captured in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, uh, the four Gospels, and some give more details than the others. So if you were to read the same encounter in, in uh, Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, they report, each of them, that when they got to the garden, that Jesus called some of his disciples to stay put, some of them to come with him, and he said to them, you stay here I'm going to go off yonder, and I'm going to pray for a while. And when he went off and prayed, the Matthew and Mark re report that Jesus, three times as he prayed, he prayed like this, Father, if it be possible, would you remove this cup from me? The cup being God's will, God's, God's purpose, God's plan, God's cup to Jesus. And, and the symbolism of the cup and drinking the cup is a symbolism of obedience. And so, so three times it reports in Matthew that Jesus prayed, Father, if it's possible, would you remove this cup from me that I might not have to drink it? Because to drink the cup, Jesus is indicating going to the cross. If there's any way, God, if there's any way, Father... Let me not have to go to the cross. And three times as he prayed, he ended his prayer like this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus is saying there in his prayer, you've given me this cup to drink. If you can accomplish salvation without me having to drink of this cup of the cross, then let it be. But if not, I'll do it. What an example Jesus sets for us in this passage. Now think with me, if you will, Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus knowing all things, Jesus could have gotten out of this moment, this moment of being in the garden, this moment when the soldiers came, this moment when, when once he's arrested, once they, this encounter in the garden takes place, once he decides which way he's going to go with the fork in the road of life and salvation, once that decision is made, it, it's, it's set in motion. So once he's handed over, there's no getting out of the cross. And after he prays, Lord, if there's any way, let this cup be passed. Nevertheless, not my will but yours. He immediately steps forward and is arrested, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. But think about this. Jesus could have avoided this whole scenario. He knew 
that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders, he knew they were out to get him. He knew that, that there was a, a price on his head. He knew that they wanted to, to eliminate him. He, they wanted him dead. So Jesus could have avoided Jerusalem. There were those that wondered, is Jesus even going to show up at the Passover since they're out to arrest him? Jesus knew all this. He could have simply avoided going. He could have, he could have been like a good Baptist and just made excuses about, about going to church. I'm not going, I'm going to go to church. It's rainy outside or it's foggy or it's the first day of spring or, or Gary Pollan's out there, whatever it might be. You know, if, if you want an excuse not to do something, it's easy, isn't it? Pam and I have had our three grandchildren since Friday. And I told her this morning, I'm not going to church. <laughs> she said, why not? I said, I'm tired. She said, you have to go. I said, well, give me one reason. She said, well, you're the preacher. You have to go to church. You didn't call Ann on Friday. You didn't make that. She's occupied, so you've got you to go. If you want an excuse, anything would have, Jesus could have simply avoided it. Jesus also could have relocated. On that night with his followers, he could have relocated to another place besides the garden where he always went with his disciples and where Judas knew where to find him. Remember, he had told Judas, what you do, do, do go quickly. And Judas went out. Judas knew where he would be. All Jesus had to do was go somewhere else. But he didn't. When the soldiers arrived, Jesus could have hidden he could have hidden behind one of those olive trees. He could have climbed up in the olive tree like Nicodemus climbed up in the sycamore tree. He could have run and jumped over into the next garden. He could have gone over there. He could have gotten to that moment and then turned and run, but he didn't. He could have refused the Father's plan. He could have said, instead of praying, Lord, if there's any way for this cup to be passed, let it be, but, but nevertheless, not my will but yours. He could have said, Lord, you've given me this cup. I'm going to set it down. I'm not going to do it. He could have done that. As it says in Matthew 26, verse 53, he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have said, come get me. Rescue me out of this assignment. He could have done all that, but he didn't. See, the scripture tells us that Jesus knew everything that was about to happen. He knew what was just around the corner when others didn't. And he chose to follow through with it anyway. He remained obedient to the will and the plan of the Father. Now, there are some who say that Jesus did not know what was about to happen. There, there were some who say that, that Jesus was just, just one Jewish preacher in the midst of many different Jewish preachers and that Jesus simply got caught up in the times and wound up dead. For example, uh, uh, Bart Ehrman, a professor of New Testament over at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. An atheist teaching our young boys and girls the Bible. A dangerous man because he is a very likable, believable person. And he writes book after book after book seeking to disprove the gospel. And in one of his books that I have a copy of, he wrote these words that Jesus was a, new, was a Jewish preacher who ended up on the wrong side of the law and was crucified for his efforts. And that belief in the divinity of Jesus arose only after his death because some of his disciples came to believe that he had been raised from the dead. His approach, Bart Ehrman's approach, like many others' approaches, well, Jesus was an ordinary man. He got caught up in the politics of the day. He wound up dead. And then his followers said, we've been following this guy. We've got to make it worth our while. So we're going to claim he was raised from the dead. That's what Bart Ehrman says. But the Bible doesn't say that. If I've got to make a choice, if I'm at a fork in the road, I'm going to go with the Bible every time. 
John chapter 13, verse 1. Just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. John 13, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. John 13, verse 11. For he knew who was going to betray him. John 16, verse 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. John chapter 18 and verse 4 that we just read a moment ago. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. So in the face of the cross, in the face of knowing, Jesus determined he was going to be obedient and submissive to the will of God. Of God. Jesus chose submission when he prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours. Jesus showed courage, and that when the guards finally got there, when they came to arrest him, he willingly stepped forward and identified himself. Jesus chose obedience to the plan of God. Even when Peter cut off the ear of, of, the, of, of the servant there, he said to the servant, Remember, Jesus prayed three times, What? If it be your will, let this cup. This cup of my assignment from God, this cup of obedience, this cup of the cross. Three times Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And then when old Peter reached out and cut off the ear of Malchus, Jesus says to him there. He said, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? When Jesus determined he was going to drink that cup, nothing was going to turn him away. Even old Peter cutting off the ear. Then Jesus showed compassion. He showed compassion. In Luke 22, it tells us he took the ear, probably laying on the ground somewhere. I don't know if it was flopping around. I don't know what happens to an ear when it's cut off. But he took that ear and he put it right back up and he attached it to Malchus. And Malchus went away knowing that there was healing power in the touch of Jesus. And then Jesus turned to the soldiers and he said, You're here for me. Let these guys go. Thinking about others every step of the way. So what can we learn from the example of Jesus in this moment, at this, at this fork in the road, at this crossroads, at this determining time and hour when he could have, have, have abandoned the mission, when he stepped forward in courage and in submission, we can learn this, that with God's help, we can demonstrate submission to God's will, even when it's difficult. With God's help, we can demonstrate courage, even when it means we step into dangerous situations. With God's help, we can exhibit obedience and stand strong when it's not convenient. And with God's help, even in our most difficult circumstances, we can demonstrate the compassion of Christ towards those whom we happen to be around. I'll just go ahead and tell you the end of the message today in case I don't get there. Uh, the example of Jesus is the one to follow. There's another example we see here in verses 2 to 9. That's the example of Judas. And Judas is the example of betrayal. There are those who claim to follow Jesus that when given the opportunity, they will betray Jesus. I say Bart Ehrman over at UNC Chapel Hill is one of those guys. Judas had been with Jesus for three years. Three years. He had listened to the sermons on the hillside with thousands of people. He had listened to those quiet talks when it was just them in the garden. He had seen Jesus raise the dead. He had seen Jesus calm the storm. He had seen Jesus feed the 5,000. He had seen Jesus cure the blind man. He had seen Jesus cast out demons. He had seen Jesus 
do all the things that Jesus did and teach all the lessons that Jesus taught publicly and privately. The betrayal of Jesus came because of several reasons. The betrayal of Jesus came because Judas was a liar. And Judas was a thief. And Judas was a devil. And Judas sided with the world who hated Jesus. So, Je so Judas hated Jesus. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? Mark, why are you talking like that about Jesus? Yes, he did a bad thing, but was he really that bad of a guy? There are those, you may have heard stories, there are those uh, that are trying to resurrect the reputation of Judas, saying he just wasn't that bad of a guy. Well, you, you tell me what you think about Judas. In the Old Testament, there's prophecy about Judas and what he would do. In Psalm 41 and verse 9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's a prophecy from the Psalms. Has lifted his heel against me. A trusted confidant has lifted his heel against me. Think about what is the symbolism of lifting your heel against someone. Think about if, you have, if there's something on the ground that, that you want to kill. And there's nothing around to kill it with except what you've got with you. How are you going to kill it? You're going to lift up your heel and you're going to stomp it. So the Old Testament prophesied that a confidant of the Savior would raise up his heel in an attempt to wipe out the Savior. Zechariah verse 11 tells us that the Savior would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In the Old Testament, that was predicted that whoever it was that betrayed the Savior would do so for 30 pieces of silver. In John chapter 6 and verse 70, to his disciples, Jesus said this looking in their eyes. He said, one of you is a devil. So don't get mad at the preacher for calling him a devil. John chapter 12, it says that Judas was a thief who stole from the money bag of the disciples. In Luke chapter 22, it tells us that Satan entered into Judas. In Matthew 26, it tells us that Judas sought out the Jewish leaders. They didn't come to him. He sought them out in order to deliver Jesus for money. And guess what the price was? 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 26, 24, Jesus said, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe to that man. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. John chapter 13 and verse 2. During the supper, the devil had already put in, into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. John chapter 17 and verse 12. During the prayer of Jesus, Jesus called Judas the son of destruction. So Judas was a bad guy. Didn't Jesus know any better than to bring a bad guy into the disciples if he knew everything? Yeah, Jesus is the one who made sure in the Old Testament that he was identified by, by sharing the bread and raising up the hill and the 30 pieces of silver and a couple of other predictions as well. It was necessary to the will of God that a betrayer be a part of the disciples of Jesus. Notice a couple of things. Notice the amount of force that came to arrest Jesus. Why? Why was that big of a military force needed to go arrest a preacher hanging out in the garden with 12 guys? And those guys might have been impressive, but they couldn't have been that impressive. In John verse 18 and verse 3, 
it refers to a band of soldiers. That Judas had a band of soldiers with him. In the, in the Greek language, that band of soldiers could have been any, num, any of three different numbers of soldiers. The largest amount of soldiers a band could be is a thousand. Were a thousand soldiers there? Well, we don't know. It just says a band. The, 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 the next uh, lowest number of, uh, of, of soldiers that make up a band would have been 600. And the lowest number this could be, this reference to a band of soldiers, is 200. Even if it was only 200, that's still 200 soldiers going to arrest a preacher across the valley. What's going on with that? Some of the officers of the chief priests also went along. What is that? Who is that group? Well, that's just maybe some temple police, some police officers, two or three, four or five, maybe ten, I don't know. But the soldiers, maybe as, as few as 200, but than other officers with them. And why in the world would they be carrying lanterns and torches and weapons? The, the, the scriptures make a point to say they had lanterns and torches and weapons. They were armed and ready for some sort of an engagement. And one thing we know is that this happens at Passover. And at Passover, there's a full moon, the fullest moon perhaps of the year. And, and, and being able to see in the nighttime would have been easy. They wouldn't have needed all of that, maybe a torch or two, but they all had torches, they all had lanterns, they all had weapons. Likely, by that number, there, there was a, a thought that when they went to arrest Jesus, either he wouldn't be there, or that he would run, or that he had established a, a band himself of, of, of people that would fight for him. And so the military went there to arrest Jesus looking for a skirmish, looking for, for, for the, the, the possibility that they would have to fight so they brought their weapons, that they would have to search for him up in the trees or around the corner or, or, or behind the building or in the next garden over, any number of different scenarios. They were ready for all, all possibilities. They came ready to fight, ready to, to search, ready to do whatever they needed to do in order to get Jesus. Notice this, the betrayal came by a kiss. The betrayal of Jesus came by a kiss. What is a kiss is, is the closest sign of affection that, that, that you give somebody. It's an expression of love. It's an expression of endearment. It's an expression of, of being close uh, with somebody. And so, so why would, would Judas have done this? Well, yes, to identify Jesus. But you know what Judas could have done? They could have sent the soldiers up ahead and Judas could have hung back. He could have stayed back in the shadows and never have had Jesus even see him. Never had the disciples even see him. But, but he could have said, Jesus will be dressed like this. And they could have went and grabbed Jesus and, and put him out. And way in the background, Judas could have stood there with another soldier and said, yeah, that's him right there. Or no, that's not him. It's the guy over here. Or he could have walked up and stood 10 feet from him and said, there he is but with a kiss of all things. Notice also that, that Judas took sides here. It was time to stand with your allegiance in that moment. There was Jesus, and there were the Romans and the Jews. Which side was Judas going to be on? He didn't stand with the disciples. He didn't stand with Jesus. He stood with the Romans. He stood with the Jews. He stood with those who uh, were against Jesus. He stood with the world who hated Jesus. 
Notice also something important. It says here that, that when, when Jesus uh, was asked, or when they were asked, who, Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. It says they fell back. What does that mean? They fell back. What, is, what, is, what does that look like, and, and what exactly is the meaning of that? Well, we're not told. We're just told that they fell back. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons, maybe, that scholars are, are look, look into. On the one hand, in the original language, the word he is not a part of Jesus' response. And in the Bible, it records that when they said that we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus said, I am he. But in the original language in the Greek, and I looked it up, it, it, it simply says, I am. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And perhaps in that moment, that declaration, I am the name of God, in that moment, the, the, the presence of God may have just been like that stone in the pond and sent a spiritual ripple out that just pushed them all back. Perhaps it could have been just the force of his words. It, it was obviously an unexpected event to take place during the arrest of Jesus. And we're not told why. I tend to think that when Jesus, who is the Son of God, just announces that he is the Son of God, that they, like all of us, will fall back in his presence. Well, there are many people that have in the past and who will continue to commit the sin of Judas, and that sin is betrayal. They identify with Jesus. They may come to church. They may be a part of a group, a connect group, maybe a part of a ministry, maybe may sing in the choir. Maybe a part of a leadership team. They identify with Jesus, but secretly they're against him. Only at some point to be exposed. Maybe exposed here on earth. Maybe exposed only in eternity. They treat Jesus with love and affection while they betray him out of some sort of disillusionment or some sense of wanting to impress others. The, the, the thing about the sin of betrayal is that you don't always see it coming. Because it's somebody who blends in with the followers of Jesus. It's somebody who blends in with, with, the, with the flow of the church. It might be a, a deacon. It might be a choir member. It might be a nursery worker. It might be a staff member. It might be a pastor. It might be a deacon. It might be a Sunday school leader. It might be anybody in the church anywhere. It might be somebody's husband, somebody's wife, somebody's parent, somebody's child. But there are those out there, just like Judas was, who will commit the sin of betrayal simply by never latching on to Jesus in faith, only going through the motions and looking for opportunities to profit from it. Well, that's two examples. Let's look at a third example of the gospel. There's Jesus, our example of submission. There's Judas, our example of betrayal. Now let's look at Peter. Peter, our example of resistance. Resistance to the will of God. It's possible to know the will of God and then resist it. It's also possible to not know the will of God and think you're doing the will of God and what you're actually doing is resisting the will of God. That's what Peter did. Verse 8, Peter asked that the disciples, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus asked that the disciples be let go. Verse 8, they came to arrest him. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. They fall back. Jesus says, I'm your guy. Let these guys go. Just let them go. And when he did that, Peter did not listen, and Peter did not go. If he had done that, then the next event not, would not have happened. Peter took out a small sword. In the face of 200 or more soldiers, in the face of the temple police, in that moment, Peter steps up with, with his sword. 
His small sword that he easily strapped to his side. It's like having a having a knife when when uh, uh, you know somebody else has got a got a, got a huge uh, a huge sword. And he reached out and cut off the ear of the servant, Malchus. Well, I mentioned earlier, Luke 22, it tells us that Jesus healed Malchus there on the spot. But Peter, in this event, like is often the case with Peter, was well-intentioned, but he was misguided. Those who resist the will of God are often well-intentioned, but misguided. Peter hurt others by, while trying to defend Jesus. And can I say this? Jesus needs no defending. So often we wind up hurting others if we're not careful, thinking we're defending Jesus who himself needs no defending. Peter didn't realize it, but Peter himself stood in opposition to the will of God. He was standing in the way of Jesus going to the cross. The divine plan was already in place from eternity past. Everything was lined up. God's plan was right there. God's purpose was being carried out. Jesus had said, yes, I will go to the cross. He willingly stepped out. Nobody had to track him down. He was ready to go to the cross. And then Peter steps in and goes to mess everything up. Which is why Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father gave me? Shall I not carry out the purpose and plan of God? You don't see it. You don't understand it. I've been trying to tell you, Peter, but you've been deaf and you've been dumb like the rest of the guys. You've not been paying attention. You've not been listening. You'll understand it better. But for now, understand this. I have to carry out the will of the Father, and that's exactly what I'm doing right now. And Peter, you're standing in the way. Well, Sometimes God's purpose and plan is carried out with blessing. Can I just tell you I like that? I like it when I'm obedient to God and there's a great blessing in it. A blessing of health, a blessing of family, a blessing of finances, a blessing of, of position. There are, there are times when we're obedient to God, He responds or, or it involves blessing, pouring out His blessing. Don't you like it when you're obedient and blessing occurs? Don't you like that? But sometimes... God's will involves, uh, involves pain. Sometimes God's will involves uh, uh, difficulty. Sometimes God's will involves opposition. And if it happened to Jesus to carry out God's will, that he was betrayed, that he was handed over, and that he went to the cross, Jesus said, if they treat me this way, they'll treat you this way. But understand, God's got a purpose and God's got a plan in the blessing and in the difficulties of life. Sometimes... We get in the way when it seems tough. Sometimes God's purpose and plan for us involve going through difficulties, and we try to get out of the difficulties knowing God would never have us do that. But it might be His plan for that health difficulty to come your way. It might be His plan for that financial situation to take place in your life. It might be His plan for you to go through that difficult time at work. I don't know, and I can't answer it, but I know that God works in the good times and in the difficult times to accomplish His good and His perfect will. Here's what I know. Is that so often, I think I mentioned this last week, I've just been impressed with this lately. So often we approach spiritual issues with human effort. So often the, the battle is a spiritual battle and we bring our, our human efforts to it and the human effort will never be good enough to fight a battle that is spiritual. And we're not, we don't have to fight in our human effort. For example, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, we're told about the armor of God. We're to fight spiritual battles and spiritual issues using spiritual weapons. And God gives us His armor. Ephesians 6, starting in verse, actually starting in verse 10. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and the power or the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That sounds tough. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. There is a way to fight a spiritual battle and to be able to stand firm. Stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up your shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Understand, there's a spiritual battle taking place, and when we just show up with our own human efforts, we can't win. But when we take on the spiritual armor of God, the whole armor of God, guess what happens? When we go back and apply the truth of His Word, righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation, His Word, the Bible, and we pray, guess what happens? We find success. We find success. See, somebody wrote this. I love it. Peter used the wrong weapon, had the wrong motive, followed the wrong orders, accomplished the wrong result. But other than that, he had a pretty good day. We can be guilty of doing exactly the same thing. We have every good intention in the world, but we can get in the way of what God is doing if we're not careful to, to face our spiritual battles with spiritual weapons. How can we be guilty of resistance like Peter. One way is when we choose not to follow the orders of Jesus. Remember Jesus said to the soldiers, let these guys go? And, and they did because they all left. And there's Peter. Sometimes we fail to follow what we know to be the orders of Jesus, thinking we know best. We're going to hang back. We're going to take charge. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. When Jesus has clearly said, no, go over here at this time. Sometimes we are guilty of resistance when we fail to pray and really seek after what God is doing. Y'all might get mad at me for saying this. I think it's true. I think it's biblical. It's not always God's purpose to heal everybody who's sick. It's not always God's purpose to save your job. It's not always God's purpose for you to escape a difficulty in a relationship. And sometimes we get in the way by praying and pushing for one resolution when God's purpose is worked out in another way. Sometimes we resist by taking matters in our own hands that are not our responsibility to take. How do you know the difference? We have to pray and we have to be in the Word. Sometimes we, we're guilty of resistance when we mistakenly stand in the way and fight against God's plan as we attempt to defend God's plan. We're fighting for God's plan, but we're actually getting in the way of it. And we resist the will of God when we use physical weapons that are ineffective instead of spiritual weapons that ensure victory, the armor of God. Well, on this occasion, with Jesus there in the garden, he's arrested, he's taken to Annas, he's taken to Caiaphas, he's taken to Pilate. The events of the cross are set in motion, and Jesus goes to the cross. And we'll read about that next week. But here in the garden, at this fork in the road with Jesus... It's the same fork in the road that we're confronted with all the time. 
What is our response to the gospel? What are we going to do about the gospel? Will we embrace the gospel and submit to it, which is what Jesus set the example for? Will we refuse the gospel and reject it and, and maybe go through some religious motions so people might think one way about us? That's what Judas did. Or will we unknowingly and with good intentions resist the will of God, which is what happened with Peter? We each, we each determine each fork in the road how we're going to respond. I want to ask you today, which of these three responses best describes your response to the gospel? Have you wholeheartedly embraced it and submitted your life to it? Have you found yourself mistakenly trying to stand up and defend something or work through something or pray through something that just doesn't seem to be what God's purpose is? Or maybe do you find yourself having gone through these spiritual religious motions that you have actually turned your back on Jesus? I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment before Ann comes and leads us in our song of invitation. I want to ask you today, I'm not going to ask you to visibly do anything, but if you have found yourself as a believer who has hindered the gospel in some form or fashion, I'd like to encourage you to pray, even right now, very simply right now, and then to take some time after the service at some point to examine your heart. But if you find that in some way or fashion you yourself have gotten in the way of the gospel, you've hindered the spread of the gospel in some way, would you just begin to pray even now, Lord, help me to get out of the way. Lord, help me to see what you're doing. Help me, Lord, to, 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 to follow you wholeheartedly. And if you're here today and you're a believer and you have embraced the gospel, you have said yes to the cross, you have uh, said yes to Jesus in salvation, let me encourage you that, that whatever the circumstances are, whatever the fork in the road is, whatever the difficulty that comes your way, don't give in. Don't give up. Don't give out. Don't give over. Stay strong in your faith. Stay close to the Savior. Remember the words of Jesus in John 18, 11, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Be willing to do whatever it takes in submission and obedience for His will and for His glory. If you find yourself here today, whether it's a one-time occurrence or a regular part of your life, and you have rejected this gospel, you've said no to Jesus being the Savior, and you might be in church every Sunday going through some motions. You might be trying to please a wife or a husband. You might be trying to keep a status in the community. But deep down in your heart, you know you have never said yes to the gospel. You have rejected it. Then I would encourage you today to turn from yourself and turn from your sin and embrace Jesus as your Savior and simply cry out to Him, Lord, save me from my sin. I believe and I trust in you. Which example today will you follow as you leave this place? Our Heavenly Father, folks have been so kind today to listen as I've tried my best with your help and your Holy Spirit to share from your word. Thank you for giving us examples that we take each one to heart, recognize where we are, and seek to follow after you. Our Heavenly Father, I pray for each one of us 
as your spirit reveals in our innermost being exactly where we stand with you, that, Lord, even now in this quiet moment, we might determine to turn to you in faith and obedience, say yes to Jesus as Savior, to say yes to living for you and not standing in the way, of saying yes to you with submission, whatever the cost. Lord, that it might all be for your will, your purpose, and your glory as we pray even now in Jesus' name. Amen.